Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. I don't know, Arthur. Nor do I. But I'm seeing things a lot more clearly now. I wish things were different. But it weren't us who changed. The great impasse has spoken! Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain! Who are you? Who are you? A very bad man! I'm a very good man. Good man. They think they lost, and with no more brains than you have. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, here we are, face-to-face. Doesn't always happen for us at the Seaver Ranch in Montana, thanks to Dave and Helena Seaver. So what do you think of Big Sky Country? It's beautiful, as I've said uh, multiple times. Uh, this is, I, mean, I feel like they ripped off the scenery from Red Dead Redemption 2. <laughs> I mean, be a little original, Montana. Like, I've already seen this. <laughs> Whole trip so far, Dave, it just reminded David that he wants to be playing. He would rather be playing Red Dead Redemption. <laughs> no, it's gorgeous. It's beautiful here. Yeah, we have some very gracious guests. And we are... Hosts. Uh, <laughs> well, they, the they have very gracious guests. You have very gracious hosts. It is weird uh sitting right next to you because i'm used to not making eye contact on the tv screen now i have to not make eye contact in person it's very awkward i I, I know and and it's easier for me to tell (laughs) yeah that's right like what the fuck is he looking at we're right now sitting in like a guest house overlooking just a bunch of mountains um and it's just a stunningly beautiful it's a stunningly beautiful place here this view is incredible all right today we are going to talk about um the structure of scientific revolutions thomas kuhn's controversial 19 <laughs> masterpiece Con- controversial man. and honestly it's not going to be today for us <laughs> it's not going to be today for us it's going to be tomorrow thank god <laughs> Uh, this was the winner of our Patreon selected episode, voted on by our beloved five dollar and up subscribers, and, and suggested by one of our patrons. And we love them all. And this was a challenge. Yeah, yeah. this particular one. I mean, we'll so. see. <laughs> we'll see how how obvious it is that it was a challenge. <laughs> it's hopefully going to be a really good discussion. I'm interested to know what you think about it. I honestly don't know. Like, part of me thinks you might hate it and feel threatened by it. Part of me thinks you might actually really like it and find yourself more in agreement than than either you thought or than I thought. So, so hey, we'll why, see. Why do you think I might be threatened by it? Do you think that it's like some sort of relativistic take on science? Well, you have publicly embraced the sort of popperian view of science as a progressive series of falsifications <laughs> using like pure observations um 
So that's why, you know, this is not, this is a different picture of science. Um, I take Popper to be making a normative claim and Kuhn to be making a descriptive sociological claim. So I think they're not that inconsistent, but I haven't finished the book. Yeah. Well, we'll see. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But first, um, what are we going to talk about today? This is an article I think you put in our Slack from Eon by Neil Levy. Yeah, it's uh, an article called Final Thoughts. Do deathbed regrets give us a special insight into what really matters in life? Now, this isn't a funny article. This isn't going <laughs> to no. be the most ha-ha of, the, of opening segments. But part of it, is, you know, that, uh, that uh, made me, what actually probably brought it to mind since I had put this in the Slack a long time ago, is that uh, Tamler probably had a near-death experience. <laughs> 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 yesterday yeah. Yeah, yeah i think we both did uh, yeah, several we, times actually yeah, yeah. but i had an, one additional near-death experience yeah, yeah. So, so i was wondering if your wisdom in that flash brief briefest of moments yeah i realized i should not be spending my life doing a podcast that was, <laughs> so thanks everybody it was fun uh dave thanks especially to you you know 216 episodes is nothing to be ashamed of uh, no, but so I it's kind of fascinated me before like that. And I think I had it as a naive assumption that uh, when somebody is on their deathbed and they say, you know, this is what life's all about. The common as the common saying goes, like nobody says, I wish I had worked more on their deathbed. It does seem as if you get perhaps be- because you have a perspective on the whole life that you've led in what like while you're about to die if you know that you're dying the things that you say about life might be particularly true or particularly valuable so it seems like on one naive take of it it might be that like we should actually go around to people who are dying and ask them like how should i live my life and their answers might actually be wise like in you know some deep source of wisdom right because Um, they're looking back on their on their whole life you know this reminds me Back when I used to, and I should do it and I don't anymore, volunteer for this um, prisoner's entrepreneurial program. Um, this, w- this is a program where they take people who are about to be released from prison and try to set them up, try to make it so that they can succeed when they're released. And one of the first things they do for those who enter the program is they ask them to write their obituary right now if they died and then also what they want their obituary to read, to be like. Um, So two obituaries. And I think both of those, you know, and especially the second one, is sort of playing on this idea that the best kind of advice, in this case, you know, kind of projecting to that perspective, is going to be from someone who has the full perspective over your entire life. But Neil Levy, who I know, he's a philosopher who does a lot of free will stuff he is skeptical that that there is some sort of privileged epistemic perspective that comes from the deathbed so i guess we'll talk about that should we go should we say first what the five most common regrets are according to one best-selling book by Bronnie Ware. Right. She's a former nurse from Australia, and uh, she wrote a book about this, I guess, just, you know, I don't know, walking around asking dying people <laughs> what their regret, regrets were. <laughs> that sounds fun. <laughs> I yeah. mean, probably, it, you know, nurses are freaking 
angels. Yeah. And in fact, I've spoken to hospice nurses yes. who seem to have like the actually the healthiest perspective, existential perspective. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Um, so she says, now, um, Levy or Levy? Mm, yeah, okay. Levy. Levy points out that there is not a ton of systematic research on this. And even in this book, it seems sort of like these are anecdotes that she's collected. So take, perhaps take with a grain of salt. But number one is I wish I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life others expected of me. Which seems like you're taking a long time to die if you're saying that whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but... <laughs> It's not their last <laughs> breath there necessarily, right? No, you want no, you want them not. to be more concise. Uh, they're sorry, you know, like they're they're in a lot of pain, probably. <laughs> right, more morphine yeah. is actually the most wise thing. <laughs> That's exactly. That will be my regret. I wish I had taken morphine regularly much earlier than I than I actually did. <laughs> I wish I hadn't worked so hard. Number two. <laughs> That's one like I'm not going to be able to say. <laughs> As we sit, as we sit overlooking the planes of one, um, I wish I'd had the courage to express my feelings. Also, one that I don't think you're going to say. <laughs> no, <laughs> I wish I had had maybe a little more restraint about expressing my feelings. You know, I wish I had stayed in touch with my friends. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I again, like, yeah. <clears throat> and number five, I wish that I had let myself be happier. What do you think that means? Again, this out this sounds really sort of culturally um I don't know how to say it, specific to a particular kind of like um a you know, person who thinks you know, like nose to the grindstone, you grin and bear it, you don't express feelings. Um, it sounds like somebody of that that ilk saying, if only I had done what I wanted to, like gone, followed my impulses, followed my desires, then right. I would have been happier rather than adhere to duty and be what everybody else wants me to be. Yeah, I guess. So it could just be a sort of summation of the first four. Right. Like those are the things that would have made the person happier. I mean, I don't know how culturally specific this is. This does seem like if they did this in America and an American nurse wrote this, I'm, I would think that these five would be among the most common. As Neil Levy points out, they are they do virtually cliche, cliches. Yeah. 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 yeah, they do seem very Western because they're kind of a, about the individual. Yeah. It's about, um, right. uh, it's not about, I wish I had done more for my community. Or right. I wish or family. I had, yeah. 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 Yeah, that's right. So, so, so Levy says, number one, he's skeptical about these, uh, uh, that these really are or really, you know, do express the dying regrets or advice of, of, of these people. He thinks it might be culturally influenced um, because in some ways they're cliches. Yeah, right. So he says, I'm skeptical first of the reports themselves. There are various cultural pressures that might lead people to report such regrets, whether they feel them or not, and might lead us to attribute them to the dying, whether they report them or not. You know, I, I think that's neither here nor there. We can't know. Yeah. Like, I believe that a lot of people do have those regrets. Right. You talk to people in their 50s who will say things like this about their life, you know? So, yeah. um, so it's not like I think that that's, that's not the big... I mean, I guess the big interesting epistemological question is is this something that we should take seriously if we could get you know if this does represent the majority 
you know, um, view of people who are dying, like, is this something that we should privilege as opposed to, you know, our own view or the, the views of, of, of younger people? Right. If you, yeah, if you ask, a, like, a, do a cross-sectional uh, interviews of people at various stages in life, is, is there some reason to think that the very last thing people say is more valuable? Um, you know, there's one way in which this seems like a generalization, an overgeneralization of something that I do think is right, which is, um, you know, suppose you have a, a, a young kid entering the MBA. For him to ask a 15-year veteran of the MBA, like, what should I be doing now? Yeah. Seems smart, yeah. right? And and so the, that people who have more experience should have more wisdom or insight into the matter, I think is a rational, you know, if not perfect, obviously heuristic. And that might go for, in general, wisdom about life from older people. So people who are not on their deathbed. So it might, it might be very meaningful to hear from elders uh, about what they regret in life. Like, I wish I had spent more time with my family if you hear that from somebody who's in their 70s, that does have, I think that does have some, some meaning. Um, and maybe we should privilege it. By the way, there's this, <laughs> there's a story of this guy. So there was a very, very famous card magician. He's considered like the, the biggest card magician in the 20th century. And he was a really eccentric guy. They called him the professor. This stats professor at Stanford named Percy Diaconis, um, he's a famous statistician now wanted to learn card magic. So he went to the magic castle in LA and he became his sort of like protege. He learned, studied, studied, studied. This guy was already probably in his seventies um, at the time. And uh, one time he had the pleasure of just being sitting with the professor and, and he, just them two alone. And he asks him, what advice can you give me as like, as an aspiring magician? Like you've had this amazing career um, you know, you've traveled the world, you've been influential, I'm just starting. Like, what can you tell me that might be of use? And <clears throat> Divern and the professor goes, fuck as many women as you can. <laughs> like that, that, that was the gem that he dropped. <laughs> yeah. And I think that that might be a regret of like... <laughs> that you're not going to say on your deathbed. That you're not going <laughs> to actually say if somebody's asking you. But if you, you know, if you give somebody truth serum, I think uh, uh, that, that would be a popular one. So, uh, sodium pentobol on your deathbed. Yeah. That's the study that you should do. on my husband more yeah. often. <laughs> Fuck the UPS guy. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god <laughs> yeah uh, <laughs> uh yeah that was also something david foster wallace said like i you know <laughs> that he wished he had he had, had more sex on his book tours um, <laughs> so, uh, so, so so uh neil levy quotes uh schwitz eric schwitz former uh, friend of the show former guest a very bad wizard's guest who's also skeptical about deathbed being, uh, you know, a sort of privileged epistemic perspective. Um, and he says, number one, dying might be subject to hindsight bias um, in the form of a tendency to assume that their current epistemic perspective looking back on the past is identical to the perspective they should have adopted at the time. And so the example he gives is kind of interesting. You know, there's nobody says, I wish I had made more money, right? right. But it could be that they're forgetting like how much it sucked to be poor 
and forgetting like that, you know, that was a struggle and worth working a lot to like pull themselves out of whatever situation that that they're, you know, and, and maybe they're romanticizing the time of their poverty, you know. Right, right. Um, so that would lead them to underestimate how much money mattered to their to their life. I mean, I think that's probably true to some extent, but people continue to work, continue to try to make more money long after the point where they're they're struggling right. for um, financial security. And I think that's the regret that people report. Not that, you know, I should have just lived in a, a shitty studio um, while I was <laughs> right. 40 and worked and, and, and collected my volumes of poetry. <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, now I'm looking forward to reading those. Um, yeah, Schwitzgebel says also in his, the blog post where he talks about this, that... Um, People who say, oh, I wish I would have spent more time pursuing my dreams, that this hindsight bias is actually causing them to think they actually had a shot more than they than they might have. So you're dying. You say, like, I wish I could have gone. I I should have gone to L.A. to be an actor. And the reality of the constraints might have been apparent when you were 25. But now that you're dying, you know, you're 80 years old and you're on your deathbed. Of course, you think you should have tried that out because like the the risks aren't so like visceral in the yeah. way that they are when you're 25 yeah. and you just would have been like at best you could have ended up just in some porn like <laughs> right. you know or, or sleeping with like harvey weinstein to, <laughs> to get a, like a, a tiny role uh, and get your sag card that's right schwitzkabel by the way says i prefer he concludes his thing by saying i prefer the wisdom of 45 year olds the ones in the middle of life who gaze equally in both directions <laughs> Some 45-year-olds also think you should pursue your dreams within reason and not worry too much about money. So I think, uh, by the way, that means what? I am, that, that means the wisdom comes from yeah. me. It emanates from me. Yes. I am going to soak Dave's wisdom, having already been I'm five years beyond you should have You should have fucked more people. <laughs> <laughs> hey, there's still time. So yeah, the, this is, I think... True, but also I think I, maybe I'm starting to reject the premise here. I think there's valuable perspectives from people of all ages. There's a way in which a 40, a 45-year-old who is still in the midst of their day-to-day -day activities, um, but has the you know this is like the the NBA veteran, right? They're not yeah. dead, but they're still kind of in the midst of uh, uh, of playing, even if they're on the t the tail end of it. And so that gives them a like insight that somebody who's dying and who hasn't somebody who hasn't been in the like normal workaday world for thirty years won't have. Right. So I think that's true. But then there's also things that that you'll lose if uh, from the forty five year old because the forty five year old might be have just gotten a promotion and is really excited about like you know I I you know like there are there are people who will be like I remember going into academia even people saying you just have to work you just have to work your ass off and just put out those articles and you know like that's not uh like I, I that's something that I imagine maybe when they're on their deathbed they'll realize oh wait that didn't amount to, that <laughs> right. didn't amount to that much in the end right right uh, did it so i think it's like every perspective and has value the young immature but full of energy and full of hope and optimism perspective has value like all of these perspectives have value i think like the idea that we should like arrange them in order of what should be the most privileged that might be the a mistake here. Well, Levy wants to argue something else, yeah. I think, which is that 
all of the perspectives from all of those people, the 45 year old, the MBA veteran, the, you know, the old magician, all of those uh, might be good or bad sources of advice. It, the deathbed perspective he thinks is going to be especially distorted. Yeah. Yeah. And he thinks this because uh, I, it's, I think a, a clever way of framing this, which is, you know, many of our listeners have heard us discuss Thomas Nagel's essay on the absurd. And we had, a, I think, a really good discussion about meaning and the source of meaning and how the fear that nothing in life has meaning is really a fear that comes from an, a completely external source. Like if you're outside of this life looking in, you might think, oh, yeah, like it's hard to find what meaning these little creatures have. They're like ants running around. Meaning comes from the things that we value, the goals that we have, the relationships that we have. The source of meaning is uh, is the stuff of life, the stuff that we're involved in, the stuff that we care about, those are deeply meaningful in some way. So what Levy wants to say is that the deathbed perspective is somebody who knows that they are external to all of those things. They'll never be able to participate in all those activities anymore. And because of that, they're giving us this kind of thing like, oh, I should have been happier. I should have, uh, whatever, spent less time working. When in reality, a lot of our meaning in life derives from perhaps pursuing work, staying up nights to get that project finished. That That is the source of daily meaning for many people. Yeah, I'm not convinced by this um, criticism of Levy's at all. And, uh, and I guess the reason is that I think somebody on their deathbed, he makes it seem like they're incapable of remembering or understanding the degree to which their long-term activities gave their life meaning. And I don't see any reason to think that that's true. And, um, you know, talking to my dad as he, as he got older, when he was past the point where he could live uh, some sort of long-term project as he had, you know, his whole career up till then, he still, he still understood that that gave his life meaning. He still understood that you know, that the, that that was something that was personally rewarding to him. And I don't see, like, uh, Levy makes it almost seem like the person is just completely incapable of identifying with. I mean, I don't think that it has to be tied to, to, to work or whatever. I think but maybe maybe if I read this Levy quote, we can see what whether or not, because I, I think I'm more sympathetic to what he's saying, but, but I'm by my choice. So he says, once you know your death is imminent, Extended plans and projects cease to have a grip on you as valuable activities, valuable for you. On the deathbed, only a narrower, more immediate set of commitments continues to have significance. When we know that we lack a personal future, we find ourselves external to the system of justification that underwrites longer-term projects. It's not just about work, I think he's saying. He's just saying like all of the things that in our daily lives provide us with meaning. Yeah, and I just don't buy that. Like, I think you can remember and identify with your previous self being engaged in long-term projects. So he says, like, as an example, he says, even starting a book or a box set as an enterprise that could require confidence in a personal future to make sense. You're not going to start reading Leo Tolstoy's 13... 92-page novel, War and Peace, if you know you just have 24 hours to live, you won't even start watching Game of Thrones. No, that's true. But you might remember uh, that you read 
all of Dostoevsky, and but not you never got to War and Peace. It might you might still say, I wish I had read War and Peace. You're not going to be like, I don't have any idea what it would even be like to want to read War and Peace <laughs> or what the value of that might be. Like that's that, that this is what I don't get about this argument. Well, he's not. I mean, I don't know. You're you're sticking on this memory thing. I, of, of course, they remember what they used to value. I think what what he's saying, and part of this really depends on data that we don't apparently have which is the people who previously valued war, reading War and Peace, when they're dying, do they say things like, read more? So if the data is right that we have, like if that woman's whatever, that doesn't seem to be what people say. I mean, like, I think some of these things could be long-term projects, right? Um, It's true that these five things don't seem to focus on that. But the way he makes it sound is that these things won't seem valuable. These long-term projects won't seem valuable to somebody who is about to die because they can't undertake them. And that's just what I don't buy. Most of life is some kind of long-term project. Spending more time with your family is a long-term project. Uh, Yeah, I mean, he does, to be fair to Levy, say, you know, it's not that they can't have any access to it, but it will seem pointless and absurd to somebody on their deathbed. Maybe the idea is that because we're taking the external Nagel perspective, some of these long-term projects will seem will likely seem more absurd to us than than they would at the time. But I, I, I don't even buy that because I just don't think that, you know, say, say reading more, which is a long-term pod project, becoming, that's something that will still seem valuable to you even if you can't do it now. So, so I think you're, you're saying something different than what he's arguing because the, the question that I take and be asking is independent of what the people on their deathbed say. Right. So like, let's forget the content of what they're saying. Should we value deathbed proclamations about what's meaningful over uh, the declarations of a 45 year old or a healthy 80 year old? And I think he's saying the answer is no, because what we think is going on is that they have uh, extra access to all of the stuff that makes our life meaningful from beginning to end. And he's saying when in reality, they might actually have since they know they're dying they might have focused completely on something else, some, something like that's from outside of the perspective of like the meaning from daily right. life. And some of their long-term achievements will look, will be minimized in some sense right. because that, they have that perspective. That's, a good, that's, that's a, a good thing. That's like, so, so when people say, um, you know what, these, uh, these 25 Emmys and Oscars don't matter at the yeah. end of the day. I don't quite believe them. I mean, I know what they're saying because they're dying. So obviously it doesn't matter because they're not going to be here to enjoy it. But like, I think they really, really, really did care about them probably. (laughs) Yeah, I just don't buy that they really would say that or that they wouldn't understand that those things actually were valuable. They might have a more ironic perspective about them. But like at the same time, you know, somebody who, 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 who keeps going on like a corporate uh, ladder keeps climbing up it and thinking, well, if I just become, you know, junior vice president, and then I'll be happy. And then, you know, somebody looking back on that and being like, oh, that didn't actually mean shit. I was, I was, I was, I was no more happy than I was before when I was starting out. Like that, they that they have that right perspective. I think it just depends on what we're talking about. You know, I doubt that Tolstoy 
thinks, God, I shouldn't have written. Actually, he might have because he <laughs> went a little crazy towards the end. But, like, you know, I think people who really did derive meaning from their long-term projects are still in a position to appreciate that. But yeah, I think I still feel like there is this tension that we have where you keep going back to the content of, like, like I think that you're right that they might be have access to all of those sources of meaning. They might, in fact, actually say it. I think the question is, if the guy says, see these 25 Oscars and Emmys, right. that's what life is about. Does that hold more weight because he's dying? Right. Right. And so, the, you know, I don't know. I, like, yeah. I'm sort of agnostic about this. It, it does make sense that I what the thing that makes sense about this article is questioning my assumption that they would know better than anyone else what life is about. But yeah, yeah. right. I, like this is why I was saying about the the question. I think there's going to be some points where there they have you know there's there's reason to take them more seriously epistemically, and some points where there's reason to take them less seriously epistemically. And you know you gotta it's you gotta get a lot of perspectives. It's, <laughs> like, it's interesting how and and how to. You know, wisdom is stuff that we should collect from people with experience. Knowing which people we should be listening to, I think, is a super interesting question because, yeah, you know, it's no obvious. It's not obvious that just because you're old, you're wiser or just because you're about to die, that you're wiser. Some 20 year old say some pretty wise shit. Yeah. Um, and and figuring out, I think maybe what's wrong is to think that anybody has a privileged epistemic access to anything that's aside that's outside of the con the context and you might you might be wise or unwise right. within the context of everything you know you exactly know? i think maybe the mistake is to think that there's some category right. of like these people are more wise than right. that people because right. i'm sure you've had this too but there has been times that eliza has said something that's like all, just like holy shit, like, yeah. just, like, my life has been illuminated a little bit more. And, you know, partly it's because she's an insightful and, and wise, but partly that comes from the fact that she is at, young and she has that perspective, and it's a perspective that you can sort of forget about, but that isn't one that is less real, you know? It, it, still, it could still apply. Maybe it's just been beaten out of you a little bit <laughs> yeah. by then, you know? And, like, but if you let yourself do it, you know, so I think, like, every age, every age group has... Uh, a certain amount of wisdom and um, and a certain you know you, that's why you have to shop widely for uh, well yeah for and advice I, on how to live and I think that the minute that you start thinking that there are people who by virtue of their particular stage in life or their particular occupation age whatever that that's the the reason they have wisdom is because of that then you'll miss out on you know something you know. 26 year old uber driver told you that might be really wise yeah you know you it's very easy to shut out people who we don't think but as jesus said out of the mouths of babes you know sometimes you can really hear wisdom. i agree with you about what when your your kid says something that seems you're like damn that's mature and wise and a good point but unlike you i always assume that it's just because i at some point said it to her and <laughs> yeah. then she's just parroting it back to me <laughs> <laughs> so I'm obviously the wise one. It still comes back to you. It's still, you're, you're the one that gets the credit. Yeah. No, I think uh, there's a lot of stuff Eliza, you know, has a better perspective on than I do. And uh, especially, th like, in my case, than I had at that age. <laughs> oh, my God. That's not even close. Like, I, it's maybe there's the maybe same ballpark. Maybe difference there. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. Uh, uh, all right. 
Um, so don't just blindly follow the advice of people on deathbeds, but you know. But if you're about to die, yeah. jot, jot us an email and tell us what life is all about. <laughs> that's that's a really little morbid. <laughs> yeah. But sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. When we come back, we're going to talk about the structure of scientific revolutions and have really intelligent things to say about it. <laughs> This episode is brought to you in part by a new podcast, A Slight Change of Plans. So look, if you love our show, you know we love to discuss complicated and fascinating topics with wit and intelligence. I mean, this is the copy that they gave us to read, but that's so true, right? Uh, yeah. They know us. They I mean, know us well. yeah, they, uh, wit and intelligence. I like that they, you know, both of those things. Well, we want to tell you about a new podcast that will leave you thinking. On a slight change of plans, behavioral scientist Dr. Maya Shankar of Google asks the question, what exactly happens when we find ourselves at the brink of change? She suggests that change is an ever-present force shaping us all. Maya hosts intimate, revealing conversations with people who've lived through extraordinary changes and who we could never get on our podcast, <laughs> like Tiffany Haddish, Hillary Clinton, Casey Musgraves, and other lesser-known guests as well, like a young cancer researcher in the throes of a stage four diagnosis or a black jazz musician who convinced KKK members to leave the Klan. You'll come away thinking a bit differently about change in your own life. Listen to A Slight Change of Plans wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to A Slight Change of Plans for supporting Very Bad Wizards. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. This is the time of the episode where we love to take a moment and thank our patrons for all that they do for us, including, in one case, invite us to a beautiful Montana ranch. So thanks to Dave and Helena Seaver. Um, but we appreciate everybody who gets in touch with us and supports us in all sorts of different ways, including just emailing us. As usual, we've gotten a ton of just really nice emails that we don't have time to respond to, um, all of them, or even, you know, a, a significant percentage of them, but we read every one of them, and they warm our hearts. So you can email us at verybadwizards at gmail.com. You can tweet at us uh, at peas at Tamler or at Very Bad Wizards. Follow us on Twitter. You can. We're always um, posting info about the episodes on Twitter. Um, you can follow us on Instagram. You can like us on Facebook. Do not get in touch with us on Facebook, though. <laughs> you will not. That's the one place where you will not get a reply for sure. Uh, you can uh, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and also on Spotify. That always helps. Thank you, everybody. We really enjoy the interaction. Um, 
the last thing I'll say is the, the subreddit. Right? Yeah, the subreddit. I forgot about the subreddit, yeah. but that's probably where the most very bad wizards related activity occurs, and that's always fun. And that's some place that we do go on every once in a while, and we will give uh, we'll give our input. We will uh, defend ourselves or. Um, even just give information if that's asked of us sometimes. Mostly we just like to tour around it and, and lurk. We like to lurk. Yeah, and we appreciate sort of like the posts that, you know, sometimes people post actual content that, that is of interest to us or to listeners. And, you know, even if you're not a Patreon supporter, toss up episode ideas. You know, we're not going to do them all, obviously, but, but Absolutely. We, we love to hear like what you guys think might be interesting. Um, and if you want to support us in more tangible ways, which we also really, really appreciate, um, you can do so in a number of ways. The easiest way to find out about those ways is to just go to our verybadwizards.com page and click on support. Um, you can become a Patreon member and a Patreon patron. And we very much appreciate that. As of now, we have three tiers. So for the $1 tier, you get ad-free episodes. You don't get to hear me talk about BetterHelp. Of course, that's the downside. That's the downside. <laughs> the yeah. um, you get those ad-free episodes, and you get uh, the five volumes of my beats, um, you know, which have been getting so much love lately. Been getting a lot of love, so I I love the love. It's very very nice to be loved. Uh, Two dollars and up, you get not only the ad-free episodes and the beats, but you also get our bonus segments, of which we just recorded. Yeah. Yeah. We recorded two. We'll probably put up the ghost one first, I yeah, would think. I think so. Um, we just did another, like a sequel to our ghost episode. Yeah. Um, and I gotta it, get some Scooby Doo beats on that. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it was actually a good discussion. Yeah. Uh, something uh, Pizarro resisted for a bit. I mean, I did take a number of anti anxiety drugs before, <laughs> before we started. And I took some hallucinogens <laughs> just so I could really get in the spirit of what like, I was So the ghost could tell you what to say that's <laughs> exactly. cheating that's total cheating <laughs> uh and at five dollars and up you get all those things you get to vote on episode an episode topic and determine what we're going to talk about we have including the episode topic for today yeah so thank you for giving us basically just homework assignments <laughs> yeah. but we really really appreciate it and i we we really like to think of those as, as a way that we're directly responding to you since we can't always respond in to those other will. ways. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, but it's also a fun way for us, and often you, uh, to learn <laughs> to and beef up about a new topic. That's right. That's yeah. right. Um, uh, if you can't or won't be on Patreon, P- Patreon, that is totally fine, of course. You can um, support us by donating once or regularly via PayPal. Um, the link is also there up in the support page. Oh, I didn't mention that at $5 and up, uh, patrons get access to our five-part Brothers Karamazov series, but you don't need to be a patron to get access to that. You can go to Himalaya.com and either sign up for a membership there and get access or buy it sort of an, as an a la carte deal. You'll get our five wonderful episodes. Of, but it will be in your Very Bad Wizards feed if you are if you $5 are and up. Patron. That's right. That's yeah. right. You can also support us with merch. I'm currently sipping in front of Tamler with a Very Bad Wizards mug. Um, you can get those. You can also get a T-shirt or a hoodie from our from our Cotton Bureau site. I think you can even get other things. I don't think I realized it, but you can get like tank tops and onesies. Yeah. Onesies. Somebody yeah. got a onesie and, and for their little baby. Yeah, and I haven't That's said so this. Sweet. Yeah, we haven't said this in a while, but we we love seeing people 
send us pictures of them wearing their gear. That's awesome to see. Yeah. Um, so yeah, thank you for all of those ways in which you support us. We really very much appreciate it. It keeps us going. It keeps the lights on. It keeps us sort of motivated in our darkest hours. Thank <laughs> yeah. you. All right, let's get to Thomas Kuhn, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. All right, welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. Dave, this is our last session that we're recording here in Montana. We're going back to Skype after this. It's going to be weird. Yeah. So let's get to The Structure of Scientific Revolutions by Thomas Kuhn, which was um, the winner of the Very Bad Wizards Patreon listener-selected episode it was one that um, kind of just beat out. Remember the trial? Yeah. Uh, by one vote. It was right. so close. Um, I'm See, glad we're doing that. I think we needed them to vote on it for us to do the episode. And because it's, it's, a, it's, it's a big book. It's longer than I remembered. And I think we needed external pressure to get us to do this. So I'm very grateful for that. And you have bravely volunteered to give a short synopsis of Kuhn's ideas in this book. And so take it away. We'll see how that goes. Um, all right. The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, as Tamler said by Thomas Kuhn, was published in 1962. Kuhn was actually uh, first trained as a physicist and taught at Harvard University. And while he was at Harvard, he started teaching a class sort of on the history of science and uh, moved to Princeton, where he fully embraced his role as historian and philosopher of science. So in this book, Kuhn is, I think, attempting to describe the progress of science over time, um, sort of from the perspective of a historian of science. And what motivated him was that he saw that there was a kind of a widely accepted standard view of how science seems to proceed, that it's gradual and linear in its accumulation of knowledge and sort of it builds over time. But Kuhn thought that this view was actually mistaken. And in this book, he develops what is like a stage-like description uh, of his approach to how scientific progress works. So uh, for Kuhn, we begin people who start doing working in science uh, in what might be called pre-science or pre-paradigmatic science. Um, there are just many approaches to scientific questions. They're worked on independently. There's very few shared assumptions and methods. So this is where you get like a bunch of people writing entire treaties on how the world works, but they're not in communication with each other. Um, but after a while, and especially probably through the emergence of communication with each other, there is an emergence of a shared paradigm. So here's where I'm going to try my best to, to give a quick definition of what a paradigm is, although this is controversial. Sort of a collection of beliefs, assumptions, methods, definitions, and probably some other stuff that guides scientific practice. It, it sort of describes the set of questions that should be asked and the phenomenon that should be observed. And it guides what Kuhn calls normal science. So once a paradigm gets set into place, normal science begins. And normal science is sort of people plugging away at the questions and the phenomena that have been defined by their paradigm. But after a while, the current paradigm, the dominant paradigm, starts to accumulate some failures. Uh, it starts being unable to account for some of the observations out in the world. These are what Kuhn refers to as anomalies. Now, at first, these are brushed aside or they're explained by making some adjustments, maybe some adjustments to local theories, maybe some confirmation bias goes on and people ignore them. And in fact, because paradigms shape so deeply the way scientists see the world, these anomalies really are often fought against or ignored. But 
this after a while can no longer be a tenable thing to do. So, so uh, after that's no longer possible, people can't keep fighting against these anomalies, a crisis ensues. And this crisis gives rise to what Kuhn calls revolutionary science. Uh, that kind of science begins to be conducted. Here, the explicit and, and the tacit long-held assumptions of the current paradigm begin to be questioned, and potentially a new paradigm emerges that can account for these anomalies. This is the so-called paradigm shift. Once a new paradigm kind of kicks in, everybody goes back to doing normal science, albeit under a new set of guiding beliefs. So critically for Kuhn, the two paradigms, uh, the previous paradigm and the new paradigm, are incommensurable. We'll probably have a lot more to say about what that means. But he made the claim in this book that the concepts, rules, definitions from one paradigm aren't translatable into the old paradigm. In some cases, even the same terms mean different things. Um, Toward the end of the book, Kuhn attempts to tackle the question of scientific progress, which is, as I was reading the book, was wondering what he had to say about this. And he gets there um, trying to answer the question of, do these paradigm shifts actually move us closer to the true nature of underlying reality if there is one? Now, Kuhn's views on this are probably what have been what have given rise to the most discussion. And many people have sort of just dismissed the entire work because of what they perceive to be a fundamentally relativistic or anti-realist take on science. And I think a lot of scientists who hear about Kuhn might think that this is what he's arguing, and so they dismiss it. But others have defended it, saying that uh, that Kuhn's claims about progress have been misunderstood at best, caricatured at worst. I think Kuhn himself thought he had been misunderstood, and I'm sure we'll have a lot more to say about this. So, Tamler, what did you think of the book? Well, first of all, great job. <laughs> Thank you. I'm impressed. <laughs> so I love, I really like it. I mean, you know, I'm temperamentally um, less attached to the kind of naive realism that scientists and, and, and often philosophers kind of uh, embrace or assume, and I, or even just realism, period. I'm a moral pluralist, and I can be pluralist about practically anything, and I think this this book makes a really good critique of a, and here's where I would use the word naive, of a, of a naive picture of how science works to give us this true or with greater approximation of a true representation of reality. And I think unlike some of the truly postmodern or, uh, or kind of hardcore extreme relativist takes on this kinds of questions, he kind of lands around where I would land, you know, just temperamentally or just kind of what I'm comfortable with, uh, which I think is a real valuable notion of progress within the sciences, but not one that requires us to think that we human beings are somehow coming closer and, and closer to understanding the truth with the capital T of how nature really is. I mean, I just think there's so many, and he talks about a lot of these, there's so many like barriers to that that are just um, part of being human. We have, um, here's like my Kantian side, which I guess Kuhn also shares here. We perceive the world through certain categories that are that we have just by virtue of being human and you know he extends this to our the, the theories themselves uh bring along certain categories with them the paradigms bring categories with them and so 
while we can say that these paradigms or these theories are better than the previous ones at solving certain problems, uh, at engaging with the world, I think I'm with Kuhn where, where he says we don't lose that much by not thinking of it as progressing towards one ultimate goal, which is truth or reality. I mean, we'll get to a lot of that stuff. I want to go into the details because whatever you think of that stuff, like I think just his description of normal science and how it works and then the transitions of how uh, you go into the crisis mode and then uh, revolution and into revolutionary science, that stuff is just really fascinating. And while he exclusively ties it to science, I, I do think, and I'm not alone here, that you can apply some of these ideas suitably adjusted to other fields as well, including my own philosophy in, in ways that are, I think, pretty interesting. So it's just a really valuable way of looking at inquiry, you know, at inquiry of all kinds. Really. Yeah. Um, what did you think? That's yeah, because that's what I did. You've been asking me like yeah. for the last few days, you're like curious what I was going to think about about this. And um, so I, I had not read this book before. Right. I had just gotten sort of the I'm glad I did because I had just gotten the, you know, whatever you get soaked into you like through higher education about yeah. what Kuhn said. And and his the use of Kuhn by people who are like hardcore anti-realists and relativists. Um, put me off a little bit but but my understanding of Kuhn was never that he was like a staunch anti-realist or relativist um in fact there's a there's a funny quote I, I don't remember now where I read it. it might have been in one of the articles that we shared with each other on his um how how he agreed more with his critics than with his fans because a lot of his fans were just like yeah you were totally right science is nothing or what, something like that you know yeah. um and I did gain a respect for him as a, a scientist who went on to do philosophy of science because you know this this in this book you can tell he knows what he's talking about you know obviously the science is was the science that he knew from the 60s or the 50s but he uses a lot of examples from the history of science he goes into great detail about you know the theories of of electricity and newtonian mechanics and and Ptolemaic versus Copernican understanding of astronomy and Einstein relativity and quant like he he knows his stuff and he's I think good at building a case for the descriptive claims that he's making. So I actually really enjoy the bulk of his book as being a descriptor of the sociology of science. Like as a sociology of science, I find the idea deeply appealing. I, it seems to resonate well with what I know about how science uh, progresses. I think, it, and so I think it could have ended there and I would have thought it was a great book. Um, the parts where he starts talking about the, uh, whether or not we're approaching truth, um, I'm, I'm less, I'm less warm than you. Maybe it's because I am a, a, a realist. I believe in a, an objective underlying reality, but here's where I wanted to, Take it back to you because there's two two things that you might be saying um, when you're talking about what you like about Kuhn. So there's an epistemological question, which is, can humans right. actually get there? And I bought like I fully accept that we have a whole bunch of barriers to understanding truth with a capital T. Um, 
But I believe that there is a truth with a capital T, whether or not we're capable of, of understanding it, who knows? Uh, but I also tend to believe that we are closer to approximating something. Like we're bet we know more. Like I want to cling to the idea that we now know more than we used to. We can explain more phenomena than we used to. But I guess that might be controversial. Well, so first of all, like I think the epistemological claim is the claim that he's making. He's not saying there is no objective reality. I think as I, uh, Philip Kitcher pointed out in some essay that I sent you. If there's no objective reality, how are how does normal science even work? Like, what yeah. is um, what causes these anomalies? How, why does a why does a theory go into crisis? Like, there is an objective reality that is out there, and and the question that Kuhn is dealing with is: Is science progressing more towards r revealing it or representing it? Or is it doing something different, which is more pragmatic, giving us a better way of interacting with it and understanding it within like the limitations that we have as human beings? And I think that's the thing that he rejects, but he doesn't reject that there's an objective reality. I don't even know what that means in some sense to object uh, to, to reject an objective reality. I'm sure there's an answer to that question that will that could be coherent, perhaps. But. Um, I, whatever it is, it's not what Kuhn is arguing for. Right. But what are we getting? So you, you're saying that he's saying that we're not getting closer to a, to a reality through the progress. Well, he, I just think he thinks that that's not the right way to think about it. Right. Like that there is this that there is this single truth, because given the limitations that we have, given the lenses that we both our lenses as just cognitive creatures that, you know, that are homo sapiens, but also, you know, the lenses of our, what we can do with science and the lenses of what we can do um, culturally, like that's, there, there's just going to be lots of different ways to branch off and different ways of, of, of capturing certain aspects of, of what's going on, but they'll always be tied to our specific, um, we can't transcend ourselves. We can't transcend um, even, and this is, I think, one of his important points, we can't transcend the paradigm that we are in um, in a way that, and this is part of the incommensurability thesis, in a way that would allow us to say, okay, well, this one is closer to ultimate truth T than this one. Um and I don't like I just that just doesn't bother me, you know, like I don't have grandiose visions about what we're it's enough that we're that you, when you get into some promising, fruitful paradigm that you're able to answer a lot of questions and solve a lot of problems that you weren't able to solve. And that we're able to, you know, send rocket ships to Mars um, and that we're able to, you know. Uh, yeah, develop but, computers and that like but that, only because those those new those new approaches track something external to us so like you say you're just about the epistemology part but you really do seem to be saying that that there there's no need to think that there is some singular truth there's no need to think that the goal of science is to get closer and closer to it that's what i think coon's point is like he talks about evolution right so if you think of the the evolution like i right. feel like i don't maybe we shouldn't get into this debate right now because <laughs> it, it would it would run over some of the other things yeah. but 
I think that I, I, I remember earlier today you were saying he's losing me with that analogy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And to me, that analogy, I, I, I get that there are some issues with it, but it seems more promising uh, and, again, less unsettling for someone of my ilk or just way for, of... Yeah. Except for an, someone who is an anti-vaxxer. <laughs> Here, here's one. Uh, I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I'm an anti, like, I should shove, like, four of those vaccines in my body because of fucking Delta. <laughs> I, I got vaccinated long before you got vaccinated. What? Because you could. <laughs> Although I did have the death shot. Like, yeah, there, every, every week there's some new way that the Johnson & Johnson <laughs> vaccine will kill me. Like it's some new, increasingly horrible way. But it's okay because it's not true in any way that it's going to cause death. Well, it's, it's <laughs> uh, or there's no way to compare, like you know, the paradigm that says that I'm dead versus the paradigm that says that I'm alive. Plus, you'll come yeah. back. As a <laughs> this episode of Very Bad Wizards is brought to you in part by one of our very favorite sponsors, GiveWell. Dave, donating money to help people is a wonderful and selfless act, but how are you going to feel confident that your donations are improving or saving the most lives? How That's an epistemological problem. It's uh, not ontological. It's not ontological. <laughs> you could do weeks of research to find the charities that are out there, what programs they run, how effective those programs are, and how the charity might use your money. That's one way to do it. It would take you um, pretty much like six months to even begin to scratch the surface there. Or you could visit givewell.org. And there you'll just get a short, vetted list of the best charities they've found at saving or improving lives the most per dollar. GiveWell is like that restaurant, that really good restaurant that you go to where there's only like six things on the menu, but they're all fucking great. That's right. You don't have to ask people like what, <laughs> like those terrible, terrible restaurants where everything is bad, but there's a hundred things. There's yeah. like eight pages of like, you know, poultry. <laughs> with pictures. Yeah, with pictures. Yeah. GiveWell is not like that. GiveWell has spent more than a decade researching charitable organizations and only recommends a few of the highest impact evidence-backed charities. Yeah, seriously, if you wanted to do this yourself, you'd need a PhD in data analytics and lots of lots of time with Excel. Over 50,000 donors have used GiveWell to donate more than $750 million. Rigorous evidence suggests that these donations will save over 75,000 lives and improve the lives of millions more. And here's the best part. GiveWell is free. GiveWell wants to empower as many donors as possible to make informed decisions about their donations. They publish all of their research and recommendations on the site for free, no sign-up required. So if you're one of those open science nerds, open as, well, AF, I'll leave it at that. They also <laughs> don't take a cut of your donation. They allocate your tax-deductible donation to the charity you choose. And Dave, we have used um, GiveWell quite a bit. Um, over the last couple of years, we have donated. So this wouldn't necessarily apply to us, but if you have never donated to GiveWell's recommended charities before, you can have, so this is, if you're, if this is your first time, if you're losing your GiveWell virginity, you can have your donation matched up to $1,000 before the end of August, 
or as long as matching funds last. To claim your match, just pick podcast and Very Bad Wizards or enter code Very Bad Wizards at checkout. Make sure that they know that you heard about GiveWell from Very Bad Wizards to get your donation matched. That's again, that's $1,000. If you go to givewell.org and pick podcast and enter Very Bad Wizards or just enter the code Very Bad Wizards at checkout and then you'll get your donation matched up to $1,000. It's amazing. Our thanks to GiveWell for sponsoring this episode of Very Bad Wizards. Uh, okay, I, I want to. So, so let's let's table that because yeah. I think that would be a good way to end is to talk about that. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about like this idea of a pre paradigm into paradigm, and the way I thought of maybe entering this conversation is to ask you because. Kuhn is really not talking about the social sciences at all no. in this book. He he, he mentions, mentions them, times, yeah. but the, none of his examples, they all come from uh, chemistry and physics and occasionally biology, but um, none of the social sciences. Social sciences often may be used as an example of something. Yeah. Um, so so take social psychology for an, uh, for example. Would you call social psychology in a pre-paradigm or a paradigm? Uh, stage like normal science because i could see an argument for both yeah and well you know so he well, part of the problem that many people have pointed out is that he offers like a whole bunch of different like ways uh, of defining paradigm um in the strongest way where it's like that whole world view rather than sort of like a guiding exemplar which is sometimes what he uses um i don't i think we're pre we're pre-paradigmatic. I think we're just going about everybody sort of turning away at specific different questions. And like you have, you know, at best you have like some, some agreement about methods. You know, in fact, a lot of times people use paradigm to refer to like a particular method in, yeah. <laughs> in psychology, which kind of bothers me. But um, we have things like a widespread agreement about, um, the task of, of experimentation and, but, but it still feels so it feels still feels too early. There are other areas of psychology that I would have called paradigmatic. So when you like, I think, and when I think of paradigms in psychology, I think of like, um, behaviorism. So like the dominant paradigm of behaviorism did seem to me to go through the, uh, the normal science phase and the uh, anomaly crisis and then abandonment, uh, large abandonment. But in social psychology, eh, shit, people are doing all their own shit. They're like, yeah. Yeah. So like, and like philosophy is also clearly uh, pre-paradigm, but in saying that, it doesn't mean that like analytic philosophy doesn't have its own methods and its right. own standards. It's right, right. just that there are all these other schools like continental philosophy yeah. or, or just a certain kind of, uh, you know, a different, a different sort of analytic philosophy that these people can't talk to each other. They can't, there's, there's not enough shared assumptions about the methods, about the problems worth discussing about. So here's, here's something Kuhn says about, a paradigm. He says, one of the things a scientific community acquires with a paradigm is a criterion for choosing problems that, while the paradigm is taken for granted, can be assumed to have solutions. To a great extent, these are the only problems that the community will admit as, a, as scientific or encourage its members to undertake. 
Other problems, including many that had previously been standard, are rejected as metaphysical, as the concern of another discipline, or sometimes as just too problematic to be worth the time. A paradigm can, for that matter, even insulate the community from those socially important problems that are not reducible to the puzzle form because they cannot be stated in terms of the conceptual and instrumental tools the paradigm supplies. And that last thing I had highlighted, um, it can insulate the community from those socially important problems that are not reducible to the puzzle form. Because this actually makes me think that even something that you would call pre-paradigm still has a lot of the qualities of the paradigm where the people within it are operating as if it's like normal science or whatever. So in philosophy, for example, this happens all the time, that, par that, that problems will be rejected as even like worth discussing because they can't be reduced to the puzzle form. They can't re be reduced to some sort of puzzle that you use the methods to, of normal science or in this case, normal philosophy to solve, right? Um, I think that's a big problem with analytic philosophy. Like you, you reject things that can't be um, solved in terms of a puzzle, like, you know, what is knowledge or what is more, what are the uh, conditions conditions to be truly morally responsible or whatever it is. But if there's these other things that come in, then those things are rejected, not out of some like uh, pr real principle stand, but just because the paradigm has been set. So it's, it's, it's like there's something else besides the shared methods and assumptions, because you can have that, I think, in something that's pre-paradigm. Uh, it, it just has to be like widely accepted by everyone or by most people who practice that um, that uh, that form of inquiry, right? And so, if you if, if social psychologists just there was this huge, wide, uh, not unanimous, but getting much closer than you are right now to a set of methods, a set of statistical um, ways of approaching um, experiments, and, the, and and also agreed about the value of experiments versus the value of other forms of inquiry, like, then you would have a paradigm. Yeah, it's super interesting. By the way, it's always funny to me when we have the exact same thing underlined. <laughs> like, well, you had that too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, because as I'm thinking about it, you know, I it's almost as if in psychology and maybe in a bunch of other disciplines, there is increasing splintering and insularity. It's something that we were talking a little bit about when we were mocking that evolutionary psych article in a previous episode or two ago, um, where it's like, well, there's this cottage industry and they all share these assumptions. They think this is a good science. They accept each other's papers. So like social psychology to me has two, like there are two things going on, or let's just say behavioral psychology, say broadly. One there is constant fighting about what methods are the best to arrive at truth, including right. which statistical tools, like whether or not we should do null, uh, null hypothesis testing or whether we should be Bayesians, whether we should measure things using scales or not. Like there's right. all this debate that makes it seem pre-paradigmatic because people don't seem to agree. But then when you zoom in on uh, one particular aspect of like the study of social cognition or whatever, there everybody has to agree about the methods or else you couldn't submit to a journal. Right. Somebody would be like, what did you do? You actually measured attitudes? That's right. stupid, right. you know? And, and so maybe this is a feature of the splintering, the increased communication and the splintering and hyper-specialization, but like maybe paradigms in the Kuhnian sense can actually exist 
you know, Kuhn talks about, you know, the Newtonian view of it, you know, or the standard model of physics. These are, this is a huge thing. But here, I think maybe it's possible that we have all of these little paradigms going on in all of these fields that are actually in some ways maybe not close to incommensurable and yeah and certainly have that feature of different paradigms of people talking past each other yeah they don't have a good way of communicating they don't agree about the the same values the same problems the same like what what count what is within the scope of of yeah. their field and what is outside the scope of their field and so and sometimes you have agreement about the questions and wide disagreement about the method um, being used so so sometimes I'll go to like a, a behavioral, well, let's say an economics talk and they're at, cause they're asking a question that I'm super interested in. Like, it'll be a question that I think really is valuable. And the method that they use seems to me so drastically wrong to answer the question that they're asking. <laughs> right. And of course they feel the same way about me. But, and it would be hard to even get to the bottom of your disagreement <laughs> yeah, right. because your assumption, your bot, like ground level assumptions are so different. And I think that's the big thing is like your ground level assumptions have to be like shared or else there's that talking past each other. Should we talk about like a paradigmatic paradigm shift in that Kuhn discusses? I was thinking maybe Ptolemy, Ptolemaic astronomy to Copernican, Copernican astronomy, something like that, that most people will know and that we will have, uh, <laughs> that we will be able to speak on with, without too many inaccuracies. Yeah. I mean, sure. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I said without too many inaccuracies, realizing, wait, I don't really know shit about this, but, um, I guess the idea is you have, um, Ptolemaic astronomy, which is based on the idea that the Earth is at, is is stationary, and all these and the sun and the planets are rotating around the the Earth, and um, and that's the paradigm. Everyone right. just takes that for granted. Nobody's nobody's asking if um, if like is the Earth moving or something right. like that. No, that's not. That would be that would be rejected. It's not. Um, it's it's not a question that you can ask within this paradigm. And so there's still a lot of puzzles like uh, Ptolemaic astronomy had a lot of virtues and could make a lot of predictions and um, the predictions could be pretty well supported. The problem was that over the course of time, its predictions, there, there were these anomalies. And to correct for these anomalies, famously Ptolemy proposed that um, the orbits of the planet. So like if the, if, if, if the theory predicted the planet would be here at this time, it wasn't, um, according to, because he had this idea that everything goes in an exact circle because everything has to be perfect. Uh, so he had the idea instead of, of that, that the orbits are in a perfect circle, but they also do other little perfect <laughs> yeah, circles called like epicycles. Loop-de-loops. Yeah, they do little loop-de-loops um, <laughs> as they're going around. But soon, like, this kept happening, and it, it, it became, even to people within that paradigm, a little too ad hoc yeah. um, in, in their view. Meanwhile, now Copernicus comes along and just says, and, you know, he's not steeped into the paradigm. And this is... I think a really interesting thing that Kuhn says is when you have uh, the beginnings of a revolution, it's usually started not by somebody who yeah. is like a respected member of the uh, normal science crew, but it's usually someone either younger or a little bit on the outside who can just have the 
the ability because they're not indoctrinated. Like I think he even uses the word indoctrinated, right? Like just to just to think about like a little bit outside the box. Like what if? And and of course he thought, well, what if the sun is at the center and the Earth is just one of the planets revolving around the sun? Now the key at first here is that that view doesn't Copernicus's view. It's it's not till Galileo that you start getting better predictions. Yeah. But uh, at first, the Copernicus view, at least the way Kuhn tells it, is ju- it makes it has no greater predictive power than the Ptolemaic view. And the move towards considering the Copernican view, whereas before it would just been inconceivable and, and blasphemous and whatever is is guided more by this just frustration with all the anomalies and the, the kind of crisis mode that Ptolemaic astronomy is in. But s- slowly, the Copernican rev- revolution starts to gain a toehold be- and more people start to get on board, but for reasons that don't involve like predictive power or greater explanatory power, but more either aesthetic or maybe appeals to simplicity. Right. Um, and right. And then... Uh, once that happens, that makes it possible for um, for for new experiments to come in and start um, gaining hold. And then you go to the new paradigm, which becomes eventually the Newtonian paradigm of planetary motion. Yeah. And that point that that um, the Copernican view uh, isn't picked up right away. Um, or is adopted maybe not because it explains things better, um, but rather because it's just more elegant. Um, other people have referred. So w- what can happen is in the adoption of a new paradigm, you actually lose predictive power. Right. So you people have referred to this as a Kuhn loss. So you pick up the new paradigm. All of those complexities that the Ptolemaic model had had to inject in order to be able to fully account for the motion of the planets. Um, it hadn't been fleshed out in Copernicus's model yet what, uh, you know, like the best predictions for right. for how things. Because he was still saying they moved in circles yeah, rather than right. ellipses. So yeah. it wasn't obviously like until Kepler came around that he could really, really flesh out that, you know, there are elliptical orbits and that explains things. But Copernicus was right after all. Um, so you incur a loss in this paradigm shift um, because uh, because the old paradigm has gone to great lengths to account for all of the observations that they have. And it's not as if, you know, it's it's not as if they didn't see that there were problems with their theory. They just found ways around it. Now, one more radical claim that Kuhn makes about that particular shift is that, um, and this is about the incommensurability of the Copernican yeah. or the Newtonian this paradigm is I really want versus yeah. uh, the... Um, the Ptolemaic is that although they're using the same terms, those terms mean different things. And I think he says something, I, I wish I had written this down, maybe you did, but like that Earth means something different for, for the Ptolemaic astronomer versus the Copernican or Newtonian astronomer. Earth has built into its meaning that right. it's stationary. And Earth obviously doesn't have that right. uh, if you are a Newtonian. And so when they both talk about Earth, even though they're saying the same word, 
they're not they're not referring to the same thing. Right. So yeah, he uses I don't remember that example specifically, but he does he uses the same kind of example with mass from a Einsteinian yeah. relativistic perspective versus the Newtonian. And um and I wanted to talk a little bit about the incommensurability because he he goes to quite an extreme view, in my opinion, when he talks about the inability to for people from these two paradigms to um not only communicate with each other, but even see the same things. Right. So he actually, it, he, he borders on a kind of view that even visual perception, and it backs away a little bit from it, but he says like even two people from these two different perspectives looking at the exact same thing aren't seeing the raw precept, like the, the raw perception of what's there but rather they're seeing something different that is infused by their background set of beliefs. And he, he tries to use the cog some, some work in visual perception, the cognitive science, cognitive psychology of visual perception, arguing that we actually see in some cases, two people might actually be seeing two different things uh, based on their experience. Their background assumptions. Yeah. yeah. Their background like assumptions. the cards um, you give somebody like a right. six of clubs but that's red yeah, and right. they will either think of it as a six of hearts or they'll think of it as a, a black six of clubs right, right. unless they've been doing this like a lot and then they will be um, finally and, start to notice it yeah, yeah. but in yeah. that case there's an objective way of determining that like which one of them is right and coon's point is there's not in the case of the <laughs> right the scientists right. from different paradigms right um and he he talks about the pendulum, you know, the um, Aristotelian view of what was going on with the pendulum versus the Galilei, Galilean view, maybe. Yeah. But, whereas he says, like, one one is seeing just an object falling, whereas the other one is seeing... Being constrained. An, the Aristotelian is seeing a, an object that wants to fall. Yeah, being that wants to fall because of being its telos. Constrained. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, now, I think I think he pushes it too far because I think he he probably you know you there there is some commensurability in the sense that paradigms do change and sometimes the same people who see who understand the old one then come to understand the new one. I feel like we do have a common way of like getting to the bottom of something. Yeah. But it's a gestalt shift, I think is his main point. It's not that it's impossible for somebody to, to come around to it, but like with the, I think, you know, and definitely better to understand the, the visual perception stuff as a metaphor rather than a specific case of what he's talking about. But like, like in those cases, you can, after a lot of work, after a lot of training, come to see, oh, yeah, that's a red six of clubs. Right. Even though that doesn't duck exist. Rabbit. Yeah. Or you can come around to see. I mean, that one doesn't require like a lot of training right. that right. just but but it is this gestalt shift. In other words, you can see it as a duck or you can see it as a rabbit. What you can't do is see it as both. Yeah. And what you can't do is like, see, oh, this is the duck part and this is the rabbit part or whatever. And like and and so that's, I think. Um, I don't know. Again, like I, I, some, I, I think of it as useful, like the, so it's a metaphor. It's a, it's a metaphor that I think is, is a value, but he pushes, he pushes it to be, I think sometime, and this is just me being nitpicky about the cognitive science of it all, because I don't like, I don't think that his description of seeing things differently is actually right. Like it's more just judgment and categorization. Like we, we make different judgments of seeing, we see the same thing. We just have a different judgment about what it is. 
uh, we're seeing, or we categorize it differently. Well, maybe the way to like bring this out. So it's a, a distinction between his view and Popper's view. So Popper's view is that you have all these theories out there. I mean, maybe a simplistic way of understanding it is we're in, we're all in the same paradigm, which is we come up with theories and then we try to falsify them. There is this one dominant scientific method, which is you come up with theories and you test them, you rigorously test them. And, and it's, you know, uh, it's like a cage match. Like, uh, <laughs> you like, you know, those WWF, old WWF cage yes. matches, only one will survive. Um, and, and you test them. And, and, and Kuhn's view is, this is just not a picture of how science works or, but stronger than that, it's not a picture of how science could work because anytime you're in normal science, there are tons of anomalies, right? Um, there are tons of times where your theory makes a prediction and the prediction is, uh, is wrong. But you can always, because your um, predictions depend on, and your observations depend on certain instruments that you have, as well as certain background theoretical assumptions that you make, you can always adjust the theory or, um, or just blame your instruments. Um, yeah. And say that, the, and and often, and of course, the instruments aren't perfect. So you might have it might be legitimate to blame your instruments. So I think like Kuhn's critique of Popper here is saying that the, it's it's not just that this isn't how science works, but it's just not how it how it could work. There's always going to be uh, there's always going to be anomalies, and the question of how to deal with them or how important they are will depend on the background assumptions of the paradigm. That, that you're in. Here's what he says. So he says, talking about Popper's falsifications, he says, I doubt they exist. Um, no theory ever solves all the puzzles which, with which it is confronted at a given time, nor are the solutions already achieved often perfect. On the contrary, it is just the incompleteness and the imperfection of the existing data theory fit that at any time define many of the puzzles that characterize normal science. If any and every failure were to fit uh, to fit were ground for theory rejection, all theories ought to be rejected at all times. On the other hand, if only severe failure to fit justifies theory rejection, then the Popperians will require some criterion of improbability or of the degree of falsification. In developing one, they will almost certainly encounter the same network of difficulties that have haunted the advocates of the various probabilistic verification theories. There he's referring to the logical positivists, and um, the verificationism that was uh, already out of favor by the time uh, Kuhn is writing. But he's saying, ultimately, Popper is just going to face that same problem that, that, they, that, that those people faced based on trying to decide, uh, you know, what degree of probability you need to say that your theory is verified. I think yeah. that's an interesting critique of Popper, and it seems right to me. It's, it seems, so this is where, I, like, I endorse um, the Kuhnian approach as a descriptive approach to, to uh, what's going on. I'm, I'm not so convinced. So some form of falsification, I think, has to occur. I think it's just going to be, it's harder and it takes longer uh, to maybe convince people that this was an instance of falsification. Because, you know, like, not even... Right. So um, imagine all of the instances in which somebody does an experiment and fails to get it right, like an eighth grader in chem lab 
right? Who does something that everybody knows is supposed to work, but they do it wrong. Nobody's going to like, you know, stop the presses. We falsified this theory of this, how this chemical reaction works. There is, I think, a lot of the minute you start providing counterexamples, like experiments that seem to falsify what uh, the paradigm or the theory within the paradigm predicts, those are going to be not published, told, you know, that that they're wrong, that somebody did something wrong. All of those sociological forces really will um, work hard against accepting that the paradigm might be wrong. But like in some broad theory. sense. Yeah, or the theory. Or yeah. the theory. False, yeah. Yeah. But in some, I, I mean, this might just get down to whether I believe that there, this is tracking reality. Like after a while, if a theory is wrong, it will be falsified um, given the right experiments. But I guess the idea is that, um, that Kuhn is objecting to. So like on the um, a really simplistic way of understanding Popper, like we should be able to design a test that everyone will agree will either, you know, not, and this is an eighth graders. These are the people who are at the top of their game. We will be able, we should be able to design a test that will um, either falsify the theory, in which case you discard it, or it will keep it alive to face another experiment, right? But in practice, um, first of all, there are going to be theoretical assumptions that just go into the uh, deciding whether the the uh, observation did or did not falsify the theory. There's there's going to be these background assumptions. This is the Quine Duhem's thesis that that observation is theory laden. There's no pure observation, right? We don't we don't get to look at the world in a way that is divorced from our background assumptions, from our instruments, from uh, all sorts of ways in which we measure and test things. So um, so number one, it it will never be that clear cut um, whether that test falsified the theory or not. But number two, like you said, it's when these things start piling up and now you want to say that, okay, that theory has been falsified. What's the difference between that and what Kuhn is saying, which is at, at a certain point, the anomalies just start to get too untenable. And so you move to a different paradigm. I mean, the difference, I guess, is in the right. Like one is just a a so proper in principle thinks that a good theory ought to be falsifiable. That coming up with a falsifiable prediction doesn't mean that the scientific community will accept it. Does not mean that falsification isn't an important part of the scientific method. And uh, people often, I think, completely like underestimate this falsification, the, the ability to falsify. So there's a really well known example. Um, the uh, biologist uh, Haldane, when people were, he was an evolutionary biologist and people were always telling him like, oh, evolution is bullshit, it can't be falsified. And his, his answer was always, sure it can. Like if you find a snow bunny in the Precambrian, then you have falsified like my theory of evolution. Right? So there, like you ought to be able to come up with claims of a theoretical uh, approach where you can generate a falsifiable um, where you can make a prediction that can be falsified. I think it was Lakatos that just called this like a big protective blanket around the theory. Because if you found a snow buddy in the Precambrian, 
it's not like everybody would reject it like immediately. They would all be like, Did, are you sure? <laughs> Richard Dawkins will be like, the trial actually is a great novella. <laughs> it, was, it was metamorphosis. <laughs> Yeah, right. right. The yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, right. They will they will come up with some reason yeah. how that would be possible. Yeah. Right? And and, and, they, and that's a they value would, judgment. They it, yeah, they they would they would fight to the nail to say that you did not this this you didn't measure it right, you didn't dig in the right place. Um you actually made up your data. But if you keep finding snow bunnies in the Percambrian, then then yeah, presumably. And I guess, uh, yeah, and I don't know how different that is from Kuhn's theory either, because, you know, there is this famous quote about evolution. Nothing, you know, nothing makes sense except in light of evolution. Yeah. So that's why. Well, especially eating pussy. And <laughs> right. Determining nothing, whether or not that's the only your way. partner has uh, been with everyone. Like, actually, that's the cornerstone of evolutionary. It was the insight, actually, that generated Darwin's theory of, of yeah. uh, natural selection. He yeah. just didn't want to say. You don't, you don't read that <laughs> in the canonical text. <laughs> but that is what kind of caused his Darwin's gestalt shift. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Check out betterhelp.com slash VBW. Tamler, I am sitting here next to you looking out at the most calm, serene uh, view that I've had in probably years. And I'm feeling very mentally healthy. But when I go back home in a couple of days, I guarantee you I'm not going to be feeling this at all. And when I go back, I might need some help with the stress levels that will surely mount. Yes. It doesn't matter who you are or what you have. Um, your life is probably stressful. We know ours is. You may not be feeling down and out or depressed or like you're at a total loss, but if your stress is high, your temper is shorter than usual, as we could already see on this episode. And even uh, if you're starting to feel strain in any of your relationships, this is hitting too close to home right It's a little weird. Yeah. You could use the chance to unload. When there are things you can't tell anybody or feel like you can't unload to family and friends, that's what therapy can be. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Unload the stressors and get some unbiased feedback. You'd be pretty surprised at what you might gain from it. See if it's for you. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp and Very Bad Wizards listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash VBW. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash VBW. Our thanks to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode of Very Bad Wizards. So, no, okay. I Look, um, I don't know, maybe we'll set the disagreement with Popper aside. I do want to talk about this idea, which you were talking about before, of, um, you know, the Ken paradigms, people from different paradigms talk to each other. Yeah. Uh, there's, this is the quote I wanted to read on, on that. Um, it's on, I don't know if you have the same page numbers as I do, but it's... Uh, we can't talk to each other because we don't. Right. <laughs> um, like, here's, it's on page 94, at least in my version. Like the choice between competing pol political institutions, that's an interesting um, analogy here. 
That between competing paradigms proves to be a choice between incompatible modes of community life, in this case, the scientific community. Because it has that character, uh, the choice is not and cannot be determined merely by the evaluative procedures characteristic of normal science, for these depend in part upon a particular paradigm, and that paradigm is at issue. So it can't just be like, all right, well, if this test works, then this, we go to this paradigm, but if this, test, if this prediction fails, we stay with this paradigm. When paradigms enter, as they must, into a debate about paradigm choice, their role is necessarily circular. Each group uses its own paradigm to argue in that paradigm's defense. But then, so now this is sounding maybe very relativistic, but then he says, the resulting circularity does not, of course, make the arguments wrong or even ineffectual. The man who premises a paradigm when arguing in its defense can nonetheless provide a clear exhibit of what scientific practice will be like for those who adopt the new view of nature. This is like, I feel like this is sort of what you were saying. The exhibit can be immensely persuasive, often compellingly so. Yet, whatever its force, the status of the circular argument is only that of persuasion. It cannot be made logically or even probabilistically compelling for those who refuse to step into the circle. The premises and values shared by the two parties to a debate over paradigms are not sufficiently extensive for that. As in political revolutions, so in paradigm choice, there is no standard higher than the assent of the relevant community. Yeah, I agree. I get, you know... It's weird because so much of what Kuhn says I find to be really actually insightful. <laughs> like, do you remember me? I, I actually found the whole book to be insightful. I was yelling to you from my room that, that he was insightful as I was reading it. Yeah. And this is a case where I think that's it's true. I mean, there is the there is always the the uh, flirting with relativism that, you know, kind of bothers me and that which I think Kuhn. As we've said before, Kuhn backs away from it sometimes. I don't think he is what the, the crazy, crazy relativist that people claim him to be. But this particular point about, um, you know, it, the analogy with politics, it seems to me to be deeply true as a description of things that, that go on when paradigms are changing. And I'm reminded of the, I don't know if it's apocryphal or not, but that the, that Einstein really didn't like quantum theory, right? Right. Um, God does not play dice spooky action at a distance. He didn't like any of that. Exactly. And here is somebody who is presumably rational, knows the mathematics. Um, but I think if the story is true, he was holding out, you know, the possibility that we had gotten something wrong. And why? Because he was coming from a particular point of view um, where, you know, that that didn't seem like the kind of thing that ought to happen. Again, I'm not sure. If he, for all I know, he was like... <laughs> but 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 there is like aspects of this, I guess, that are that would have that whiff of re relativism that I think would, would bother you, which is that part about how this is a matter of persuasion. Now, as he makes clear in the, in the postscript, it's not that it's a kind of arbitrary, like whether somebody right. is persuaded or not. There are better or worse reasons. And that's, this is true with the political revolution too, right? It's not that um, there aren't good reasons for you to um, become, you know, for you to finally become a Bernie bro. <laughs> but there are the thing that will decide it. The only thing that will decide it is the ascent of the community. And that's the thing I would think that you would um, 
that, that you would resist because it does seem to at least tie it. But I guess you might say that's sociologically true. It's also, yeah. It, but, you know, I think that, that part of the problem that I have with this book maybe is Kuhn as philosopher, where I think a lot of the things that he says are underspecified and not precise. And I think he had to sort of deal with answering critics a whole lot because a lot of what he said was up for interpretation. So, yes, at, on the one hand, he says it's only through persuasion that this is going to happen. But then in you know, the very next sentence, he says, but the persuasion is going to be good when it's based on good reasons, which I just take to be. Well, yeah, that I mean, truth persuades people. But it's not it's good reasons that isn't like, well, this is but they're not spurious, it doesn't reduce like to this just uh, wasn't falsified or this theory wasn't, it's like... But it's also not like, well, I like the way you look, so I'm going to buy your argument. No, right, right. exactly. But, the, but I guess the, the thing is, there's going to be no independent way of saying, well, they shouldn't have gone from this paradigm to that paradigm or like, you know, some sort of tribunal that can independently judge the two different paradigms. Like, um, you know, at one point he calls it like a conversion experience. It's like this big just, oh, I get it now. You know, like I, right. I, I, I see it now. I didn't see it before. I was too steeped in the, the assumptions of the other paradigm that it, like I didn't even have a window into what this is talking about. Now I get it. Now maybe the thing that clicks is somebody who like you know finds a new way of describing it to me but but still that is going to be something that is ultimately not fully determinate you know in terms of uh the scientific method which hangs over all of these paradigms right. and, and 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 is a way of adjudicating between them. Right. So this is where uh, I find it to be frustrating, the way that he flirts with one versus the other. And I want to get back to um, what you were, you brought up earlier about his analogy to evolution, which I think is, for me, it's a wrong metaphor for what's going on with scientific revolution. So he says, um, rather than be just successively approximating truth, where each paradigm gets us closer and closer to truth, um, maybe it's more like biological evolution. We, some, you know, on some naive view, you might think that there is some, you know, uh, that evolution is getting organisms to be better and better in some in some sense, where um, where there is forward movement, movement toward improvement, some normatively better end state than beginning state. We know that that's not true of evolution. We know that biological evolution is not driven by any end goal. And he says, um, maybe we can understand science that way. That seems like what he's saying is that it is uh, that these paradigms that replace other paradigms are driven by not not approximation to truth, but by what I might call at least compared to the view that it's approximating truth as fairly arbitrary characteristics. Like, like one paradigm might replace another paradigm for reasons other than that it is truer. So I'm not quite sure what his view is, to be honest. And, and I think that he wrote things that where he tried to like spell out his view and he even had a book that was unfinished when he died. And I think it was the article that you shared with me that said, 
but we shouldn't treat that as like actually like the definitive view. Like we shouldn't treat just his last book as right. what his definitive like view the would be. Bed, yeah, <laughs> exactly. I wish I had been a scientific realist more often. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Nobody ever said like when they died, I wish I had been more relativistic in my view. So this is on page 170, and I want to know your thoughts about this, because this is where I think <laughs> yeah. uh, this is in uh, the last, the, the problematic last chapter that you, yeah. where you jumped, um, jumped I, ship. I just cackled because if you're about to read what I think you're about to read, I have a note in the margin that will explain what I think. <laughs> okay. Uh, he says, it's now time to notice that until the very last few pages, the term truth has entered this essay only in... A uh, quotation from Francis Bacon. The developmental process described in this essay has been a process of evolution from primitive beginnings, a process whose successive stages are characterized by an increasingly detailed and refined understanding of nature. But nothing has been said or will be said makes it a process of evolution toward anything. Inevitably, that lacuna will have disturbed many readers like David Pizarro. We are all deeply in, uh, accustomed to seeing science as the one enterprise that draws constantly nearer to some goal set by nature in advance. But need there be any such goal? Can we not account for both science's existence and its success in terms of evolution from the community's state of knowledge at any given time? Does it really help to imagine that there is some one full, objective, true account of nature and that the proper measure of scientific achievement is the extent to which it brings us closer to that ultimate goal? If we can learn to substitute evolution from what we do know for evolution toward what we wish to know, a number of vexing problems may vanish in the process. Somewhere in this maze, for example, must lie the problem of induction. So I think that's the idea is that he's not saying that we don't evolve and that we don't get better and more refined and more successful as we evolve. But the only thing that he's resisting is this idea that nature and the universe has set this goal that we're trying to reach in advance. And that's the thing we're moving successively closer to um, with each, you know, scientific uh, advancement. Rather, there's just new things that we want to know, new things that we want to know, new ways that we want to approach the universe. And that's the way the evolution. And some of those things are set by, uh, you know, something in nature. Some of those things are set by just uh, where we're under, uh, you know, new things we want to understand. All of them are constrained in some parts by the fact that there were limited creatures um, and practicing using limited methods. Yeah, again, it's confusing epistemology and ontology in, in a weird way. Um, but, okay. I don't see anything uh, ontological there. Um, I think it's all epistemological. Well, what's there is that... Uh, the the very quote that does it really help to imagine that there's some one full objective true account of nature and that the proper like that's an ontological uh claim, no, no, no. Right? but i thought that that's and that that's the thing that we're moving towards yeah does it he's he doesn't think it helps to think that we're moving towards that right right so so don't think that we're moving towards that that's not to to him we can abandon that and still have the same science Right. But I don't think in abandoning it, we're denying that there is an objective reality. We're just abandoning our quest towards thinking our quixotic idea that we are just getting closer and closer to it. Yeah. So if you want to know what I think, I have three words written <laughs> by that paragraph. Fuck you. <laughs> Off the rails. 
That's <laughs> <laughs> literally what I wrote. Um, yeah. Can we not account for both science's existence and its success in terms of evolution? What success? Success about what? And then he, he, earlier he says, the developmental process described in this essay has been a process of evolution from primitive beginnings, a process whose successive stages are characterized by an increasingly detailed and refined understanding of nature. Right. How is that not saying that we're understanding nature and that nature is a thing to be understood? No, but like, again, the evolution analogy, right? Like, but there's clearly a sense in which we are more refined and detailed creatures. We have evolved to be, now we're not evolving towards some telos where we're becoming like, you know, like in 2001, the little baby at the, at, at the end. That's not, we're, there's not just some straight line that we're evolving, but that doesn't mean that we're not getting more and more complex and interesting and refined and... And yeah, but like, he's not saying that science is getting more complex and interesting. He's saying that he is, it is he actually says it starts in primitive beginnings and gets more refined and understanding of nature. It's what? a more refined understanding of, of nature. nature. Right. So understanding of nature is that's something. Like what are you understanding? That's a deep claim that he's then seeming to deny. Like like there is something to, that in saying a refined we're moving toward a refined understanding of nature you are saying that there is a nature to be understood yes he's i think he thinks that there is a nature out there but i think like maybe this is the best way to and understand that we are it. moving toward understanding that nature that's out there. there's not one kind of grand unif i think maybe this is well that what is falls an ontological claim what that is not no i still think it's epistemological i think he's like maybe the best we can evolve towards is one of many incommensurable like best kinds of theories that um will make as much sense of of you know the the this external reality as it's possible for us to make there's no one single one that you know the others are uh, no approximate like greater approximations to they don't reduce into each other they're not explicable in terms of each other there there are uh what's the what's the word for this like um i mean maybe this is just the what falls out of the incommensurability thesis but um there's not this one thing there might be like say 30 equally refined ways of understanding nature as best as we can they'll all have trade-offs they won't be interpretable from one paradigm to another and that's just like that that's the best we can do i don't know if i explained that well but i'm saying that like you know if you have a more pluralist understanding of this it is you're you're not uh going off the rails in terms of denying that there is this kind of progress just because you and you're not you know being incoherent or contradicting yourself when you say you have a better or a more refined understanding of nature. I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't know that I get it. I don't like I, if, if this is not an ontological sort of claim that there is no, that there is no objective underlying reality. Um, so if, if we grant that he's saying there is one nature, there is one thing that's out there. I'm not sure what it means to have a more refined understanding of that nature, unless what you mean is we have, you know, like the blind man, the three blind men and the elephant kind of like claim where it's like you're describing a different part of that nature. But these theories compete with each other to explain the very same aspect of nature that we have access to. So the the rotation of the the, the motion of planets are 
you know, one theory attempts to explain it. The other theory does a better job of predicting it. I think it's weird to say that that paradigm that replaced the, the, the Ptolemaic paradigm um, isn't closer to the truth of how those planets move. That's what I'm not quite getting. But I, I think that's because you, that the, you're still clinging to this idea that there's some independent way that the planets move yes, that, that, we can, but, that we can like make sense of. No, okay, wait, hold on. Sorry. So uh, that, there's two things. One is that there's an independent way that the planets move, and yes. two is that we can make sense of. Are you saying that there isn't an independent way the planet moves? I'm the saying there's move? not a single wait, way of understanding how the planets move that 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 is accessible but take the understanding out of it yes you think there is a single way that the planets move well that's a very hard thing to say in this context right like again like not denying that there is an objective re- morality but when we morality. say there is a uh, not morality, <laughs> uh, reality yeah. uh, uh, independent reality when we say that there is a single way that uh, planets move, we have to, I think this is Kuhn's point, we are, there's a lot of theoretical assumptions that are, that that enter what we mean, what we even mean by that. And there's going to be paradigms that, um, that understand that, that statement one way, and there's going to be paradigms that understand that statement another way. And we can't transcend that. So there is a reluctance, though, to just straight up say there is an objective independent reality. What I'm talking about is epistemology. In terms of being able to describe it, that's the that's the thing that um, that's, that's, or even that's, understand it. That's fine. As long as that there is a, a belief, even with zero sort of actual knowledge about how the planets work, even somebody who doesn't who knows nothing about the planets work and has no hope of ever knowing how the planets work the belief that there is a way that the planets work, even if we can never achieve true knowledge of it. That's like what, what, uh, it's just unclear to me that he's just willing to, to say, yes, there is an external objective reality. Now the question of whether paradigms get us closer to that external reality is a separate one. I think paradigms are ways of understanding objective reality, but they're not, they're, they're it's not conti- like they're ways of interpreting objective reality. There are ways of, uh, like he says, yeah, um, but there is that thing to be interpreted. Everyone agrees. But they don't, but no, I think they just, they don't agree about what exactly needs to be interpreted. What exactly calls out for explanation? What exactly is, because they have different background assumptions and different conceptual frameworks in terms of how they approach the issues, even if they are saying the same word, even if they're using terms like the objective motion of the planets or the objective, like, you know, truth about uh, phlogiston versus oxygen, like dephlogiston. I was was about to bring that up. Yeah. But but it's, but... Even the people working in different paradigms where one says it's deflogisticated air and one says it's oxygen, those scientists are like, well, which one is this thing here? Right. right. Uh, like it's not the incommensurability isn't that ontological level. It's just really usually about like what's the best description of this thing that we both agree is sitting here. I mean, I wonder if this is like like I, I have no problem with thinking that this is purely epistemological maybe because I think epistemological problems are deeper than you think they are. And so, like, if, like I think maybe... Like, they're what very you're, deep. They're just not ontology. Well, no, but I think that, like, tell me if this is true, that's implicit in sort the of... Gettier cases are the deepest you can get. 
implicit in what you're saying is this idea that if it's an epistemological problem, then it's solvable. Then it, you no, know, like no, with no, no. Well, no, then no. I think that it you, could be it, like there are things that I think humans will never know, but that exist. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. So then I think that's all you need to concede for for this picture that Kuhn is presenting to be compelling because he could just think that the epistemological problems of understanding reality are, are so deep that it's no longer useful to think that that's the thing that we're aiming for. Rather, we have to just accept our epistemic uh, limitations and understand science in this different way. Yeah, what I, do, what I don't, what I can't get to is though some some view that these different claims about reality are sort of just arbitrary and determined by like fashion or something like that. Well, he doesn't say that though. So that's the caricature. But he really flirts with it by saying, you know, like uh, by saying there's no need to think for this to work. There's no need to think of there being an external reality. No, he doesn't say there's no need to think of there's an external reality. There's no need to think that that's what science is aiming towards. Yeah. Then so then what what accounts for the greater success, that better refined understanding of nature that one paradigm brings uh, that the other one didn't have, if not a better description of that nature? I get so, like, think of the evolution analogy, right? Like, there are some species that are more successful than other species um, in, in, in terms of how they uh, handle, say, an environmental change, some kind of environmental change. You can say that, and you can even understand it and account for it without thinking that, you know, having an Aristotelian view or some sort of teleological view of the direction of evolution as towards more and great, more and more perfect individuals or species, right? You can still say that these things are more successful or less successful. Uh, yeah, but that's such a bad analogy. I mean, we have a really good understanding of what we mean by more or less successful because it's so tied to the environment in which that organism evolves. Like, it's just... Why well, can't I don't you know say what that about science? Because science is exactly not that. Science is exactly trying... It's not trying to say that, like oh, this theory helps us understand the planetary motion in Kansas in 1950, but not in India in 1493. Like, it's not, it's trying to understand a static, fixed, objective reality. Like, it's, it's the, the whole point of scientific description is to describe that motion of the motion of the planets or whether it's oxygen or not, right. Or the atomic theory like those, I don't, I'm just, I don't see the power of these, the analogy to evolution. Like it's at best has a surface like similarity. So this is exactly where like, I can't believe I'm going to say this, but I don't think you're being Kantian enough. <laughs> when you say there is this objective picture of the universe, that that's the thing that we're trying yeah. to get towards. Like, I think you're underestimating the limitations and even that means something static, that that is a, that that statement um, is something that can be divorced from just our conceptual, your conceptual schema right now, right? When you're saying that there's some sort of objective 
uh, picture, static, objective thing that we're just struggling to try to, it's like just what you think that thing is out there that you're trying to understand is going to be shaped in part, uh, inevitably, by your categories. And so the numina, you want the numina. Well, one time you turn Kantian, you actually use it terribly. You <laughs> want the numina. That's what you Look, think is out there. I, it's. I think this is a completely overthought. Like so, you, you know, Galileo wants to know whether two objects fall at the same time, like uh, regardless of their weight. There's an answer to that. There's right. just there just is an answer to that. Right, but that doesn't. I don't think anything Kuhn is saying is inconsistent with that. Well. It kind of is if the if the claim is that there's no need to believe that there is an objective reality for science to be science. He, again, there does need to be an objective reality for science to be science because otherwise, what the fuck are we doing? That's exactly what I'm saying. No, but it's, but, but that does <laughs> but it's there's still the gap between that and science needs to be understood as working towards this one true picture of objective reality. That's the thing that Kuhn rejects. I mean, look, there might not be one true picture of objective reality that we can ever achieve, but that doesn't mean that we're not sort of working toward describing more and more accurately. That's why, like, paradigms but, but, are achieving progress because they are approximating, like, the truth of the world that is external to us. This is, let me see if this is your Yes, view. like, ro like, ro like, like gravity either exists or it doesn't. Right? No, 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 just let me frame it this way, right? Caricature. There is one true picture of reality um, out there, right? And maybe we'll get there, maybe we won't. Pro maybe we definitely won't, but we'll get closer and closer to it. And all I'm saying is that what you understand, that the, 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 the meaning of one true objective reality, the things that you want to find out about gravity or about, um, you know, oxygen or about quarks or about whatever, that is going to be shaped, like, inevitably, necessarily by your paradigm. And so this is why it's not maybe yeah, that helpful to think, oh, as we go from su successive paradigms, from one paradigm to the successor paradigm, we are now just that much closer to the truth because even just how we understand truth or reality has now changed in a way that is, um, that is a part of that paradigm. Right. So just even understanding what the target is, I think this is just all he's saying, is that the target changes uh, depending on the paradigm. And so you're not even aiming, you're not aiming for the same thing um, from paradigm to paradigm. I, I think that would completely undermine what he's saying about paradigms because the, the anomalies that need to be resolved for a new paradigm to be ushered in are the same questions. Like there, there, there is... They're uh, not though. Yeah, but like when, uh, when enough anomalies exist that the paradigm can't explain it, the new one comes in and says, oh, here's a better theory, relativity, rather than Newtonian mechanics. It's not arbitrary. It's actually like doing a better job of describing the target of explanation. But when you say a better job, right? Yeah. I mean, this is, I think he would even agree that Einstein's theory does a better job uh, than Newtonian mechanics, but it's just that he understands 
better job differently than you do. You have this assumption that it's doing a better job because this is closer to how uh, reality actually but is. So how, how, on your view, like how do you understand him to mean better job? It solves more problems than we that we what currently problems? want to solve. Like like what? launching a rocket ship to the to and outer why, space. Why is it better at solving those problems? Because what do you mean? Like it's just, like, but like, what makes a theory better at solving problems that we need to solve? Like, I guess you want me to say objective reality. No, I just want you to say that, 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 like, that it learned something that the previous one didn't learn about the universe. The, the thing that Einstein did was give a completely just different understanding of, like, what space is and what matter is. Yeah. Um, right? Right. So, like, now the, the target has shifted. Okay. Right? So Unless it's just some, like... No, no, I don't think the target has shifted. It's just we just... We... He, Newton thought it was this, but in fact it was this. Like that's not a but shifting I just think target. That's right? not an accurate way of describing. Like it's not Newton thought matter was this, but it turned out to be this, or or like he thought but mass this... was this, but mass turned out to be that. That you can't say that divorced from the paradigm that you're in. But this is what confuses me, and perhaps we should stop it. Yeah. <laughs> but what confuses me, maybe just to get back to the book, is that throughout. That's exactly the way that Kuhn describes things. So like people used to think of light as corpuscles and then they understood it to be a wave. And then there was this question of whether a wave could be uh, could travel without a medium. And it's all described as sort of this like, oh, and each step gets us to a better description, not for those. They weren't trying to solve any problems other than what's the best way to account for the data that we have. And and. We used to think it was phlogiston, but now we have knowledge that it's oxygen. I think he would say, yes, that that is a closer approximation to truth. No, he would not say that. I mean, you know, he wouldn't say that because he flat out rejects that. Right. Like the thing that like uh, yeah, the thing that he, he thought Aristotle, that his his kind of conversion experience was looking at Aristotelian uh, metaphysics or astronomy and 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 like. At first, you know, being raised to think, oh, God, this is this is so stupid. This is so primitive. This is infused with all sorts of religious ideas or platonic ideas. And then realizing, holy shit, if you change your concepts, this actually works better uh, than any subsequent uh, paradigm until Newtonian mechanics. Right. And. Meanwhile, so so like you really didn't get this closer and closer to the truth there. You had a paradigm that was pretty successful. And then uh, Wait, Newtonian mechanics, you think Kuhn doesn't think is better than Aristotelian? No, he does. But that's the first one. OK. Sure. But wait, what does that mean? I mean, it just means that it took us a long time to get there. No, it means that. Unlike the standard picture where you go Aristotle to Ptolemy to Copernicus to Kepler to and all of these are just getting better and better building towards Newton, which is then building towards Einstein. It actually was no Aristotle had had for that schema. And there's a lot of different reasons why we had to reject the Aristotelian worldview. Like, um, but he's that worldview was wrong, was bet. <laughs> but, you're so frustrating dealing with this. Um, but like the other worldviews were less successful until you got to Newton. The other worldviews were less successful than Aristotle. It's all like so much of what we're trying to 
figure out is what successful means. And so I have a solving problems that human beings decide for various reasons that they want to solve. And for me, it's correspondence to the observation. Right, which are theory dependent and which problems, are but how are problems not, I mean I, I don't understand the, just they're what, not there are some things that aren't theory dependent like what, how long it takes the sun to travel across the sky that's not something that's like oh I'm so stuck in my paradigm I never thought to ask that question like that's there's just some observations about the natural world that the some theories do better at, at explaining I mean for a long time when you said, the sun, how long it takes from the sun to travel through the sky, that would mean very different things to somebody uh, in a Ptolemaic paradigm versus somebody in a Newtonian paradigm, right? And Copernicus would say, the sun doesn't move at all. It's in the center of the universe. What are you talking about? You know what I mean. Like, even Egyptian gods had chariots that brought the sun across the sky. I simply mean how many hours of daylight there are. Like, that's not paradigm dependent. There are just observations that aren't so... It's the human but mind. What, is what's, yes, that's like, true. Yeah. So, but wanting to know that and thinking that's important—that is human dependent. Sure. But now that we want to know it, there's a better answer than another one. It's not like Egyptians were like, there is no such thing as the amount of time that there is light in the sky. Like that seems like. A I mean, thing. I agree with you. I don't. I don't think. Like, I don't get the point. I guess. Like, yes, there is. You can measure like sunrise to sunset in terms of yeah, hours you don't need without a, being steeped in a it, paradigm. Yes, exactly. And so some theories will do a better job of predicting how long that lasts throughout the year. Right. It's not the question isn't paradigm dependent, but the answer might be. Right. And those answers might be better than others. And when it becomes yes. really better, a paradigm shifts. That's all I'm saying. Like, you know, if you're just talking about here, the sun where that where the sun goes over that mountain i want to know how many hours and uh between that and the sun going over this mountain that's very different than like because that is a practical problem that you want to solve but okay i have a proposal for you because i think that we have a deep a deeply different view of this stuff and i think that you have sort of a pragmatic theory of truth and i have this sort of correspondence theory and i think we could actually do scientific truth yeah 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 Uh, i think we could do an episode just about that because we're certainly not going to like arrive at we are talking past each other yeah, now. Yeah. <laughs> exactly uh, we come from different paradigms mine is the better paradigm but not the one that is closer approximation to objective <laughs> I, mean, I, I think the real take-home message from this episode is you're just pulling Kant out of your ass just whenever it's convenient to you just like noumena just boom noumena phenomena i i think that like it's just an (laughs) obvious truth that we need concepts and backgrounds assumptions to even make sense of like uh what and what kinds of observations we're making or whether the you know a prediction is successful or not and when you change those background assumptions that will change um the that's all that's all without these this conceptual um experience uh, the, and the training that we get from that and the background of that, the world is just, a bl- in William James's phrase, uh, a bloomin' buzzin' confusion. I agree about that epistemological claim. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. All right. All right. <laughs> it's so fun to frustrate you right now. <laughs> it's... Uh,
Let's go play some cornhole, and that way I can frustrate you that way. Uh, like that, that for those listeners not familiar, that is a game. <laughs> it's a game with being It's a bag. fun game that we play. <laughs> <laughs> All right, join us next time on Very Bad List.